Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. I am Scott Miller and I serve as your ongoing host and interviewer. Today I am delighted that the renowned neuroscientist, brain imaging expert, psychiatrist, and best-selling author, Dr. Daniel Amen, is joining us live from his studio in Southern California. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Scott. What a joy to be with you. Gosh, what an honor to have you here. Daniel, you are renowned for your authorship. You've written, gosh, close to 30 titles. You are on TV, I think, almost every day. If I don't see you on Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or Rachel Ray, you're somewhere on PBS every weekend. So to have you on our series is an enormous honor. We appreciate your time today. Well, you're welcome. I'm a huge fan of Franklin Covey and uh, the productivity solution we did together. Right. Um, you're making a difference in the lives of thousands of companies, which means millions of lives. Well, so are you. Daniel, you and I have been friends for nearly a decade. We met, I think it was in Las Vegas of all places, about 10 years ago. And I remember one of the questions I asked you off camera, and I'm sure you remember it also. Uh, I was 40 then, I just turned 50, ironically, last week. And 10 years later, I'll tell you, I'm still struggling with some of the same issues, although I think I've improved maybe measurably, maybe nominally, my own brain health. And one of the first questions I ever asked you, which I'll start with again today, was at 40, I was occasionally struggling with retrieving words. You know, I would call a door a window, or I would call a garbage can a sprinkler. But I mean, you know, from a guy who was fairly well, you know, educated and robustly employed, I'd find myself struggling to kind of call things by their right names. And I remember your response was, you have a problem. So for those of us who are in our 40s and 50s and shouldn't be yet experiencing those types of um, sort of word recalls, what immediate advice would you give again to me for some things I should be doing to rectify that? In fact, I was at a 4th of July party recently where a person, I'm going to guess about my age, unprovoked by me, was lamenting about the same exact thing, how she kind of has ongoing baby brain, as she called it, and her youngest is 10. What's some immediate advice you would give us on those types of challenges? Well, I mean, it's a sign that your brain is struggling. And uh, even though it's common, it's not healthy. And so when those things happen to my patients or even occasionally to me, I know I need to be more serious about taking care of my brain because your brain's involved in everything you do. And since most people never look at it, uh, that's what we do here at Amen Clinics, we look at people's brains, um, you need to begin to look for the signs that it's headed for trouble, like forgetting things you know, um, calling things by the wrong name. Um, th those are things that just tell us that you should be more concerned. So, Daniel, I mentioned in our introduction that you are arguably, at least in my judgment, the world's leading authority on brain health. I mean, you are the doctor who has probably looked at and analyzed more brain scans than perhaps any human in history. You are a double board certified psychiatrist, so you're a medical doctor. You've spent the better part of your entire adult life focused on understanding the role that our brain plays in our entire life. Would you take a couple of minutes and just maybe give us a quick high school science refresher on what is the role of the brain? 
what are the different parts, the parts they play, and how, what are some things we do, maybe even unconsciously, to damage our own brain health? So it starts with this really simple principle. Your brain is involved in everything you do, how you think, how you feel, how you act, how you get along with other people. Um, when it works right, you work right. And when there's trouble in your brain, you're more likely to have trouble in your life. Um, it's incredibly and wonderfully made or evolved. It has a hundred billion nerve cells, more connections than there are stars in the universe. Even though it's only 2% of your body's weight, about three pounds, it uses 20 to 30% of the calories you consume, 20% of the blood flow and 20% of the oxygen that you breathe. So your brain is incredible. Um, it's estimated it has the storage capacity of six million years of the Wall Street Journal. And if you take a piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand, it has a hundred um, thousand neurons and a billion connections all talking to one another. So your brain is incredibly special, but it also is very soft. It's about the consistency of soft butter. Um, tofu, custard, somewhere between egg whites and jello, and it's housed in a really hard skull that has multiple sharp bony ridges. This is why children should not be hitting soccer balls with their head. This is why you really shouldn't let your child play tackle football or even ride big horses because concussions and traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives. And a lot of people don't know that. If, if you want to think of some interesting parts to the brain, it's the front third, largest in humans and any other animal by far. It's called the prefrontal cortex. It's the CEO of your life. It's called the executive part of the brain. It's involved with things like forethought, judgment, impulse control, organization, planning, empathy, learning from the mistakes you make. And uh, unfortunately, if you hit soccer balls with your head repeatedly, you damage the C-suite, if you will. And uh, you're just not as effective as you could be. There are huge portions of the brain called the temporal lobes underneath your temples and behind your eyes. They're involved with things like memory, learning, um, temper control, uh, processing, uh, new information, incredibly important. And unfortunately, they sit behind a sharp bony ridge that makes them easily damaged with things like concussions. So protecting your head just becomes a critical brain health strategy. And then maybe just one more, I call it the Rodney danger field part of the brain. And I have to tell you, Scott, I'm just horrified because some of my young team members have no idea who Rodney Dangerfield is. <laughs> and that just makes me feel old, <laughs> right? Um, but the cerebellum in the back bottom part of the brain, even though it's only 10% of the brain's volume, has half the brain's neurons. And it's also involved in processing new information. Think of it like the major processor in the brain. And when it's low, when it's sleepy, um, it's damaged by alcohol, for example. Um, you don't process information 
properly and you have trouble with impulse control and trouble learning new things. Your brain is just so incredible. And so why should we all care about it? Because it's your brain that gets you a date. We have a high school program uh, that's really cool. And it's like, why do you wanna care about your brain? It's your brain that gets you into college. It's your brain that gets you your first job. It's your brain that gets you independence because your consistent behavior causes your parents to trust you. It's your brain uh, that does everything. I have this uh, really well-known celebrity I treat who'd gotten herself into all sorts of trouble. And I guess it's about a year and a half now, I published a huge study on a thousand pot smokers and we found every area of the brain was lower with marijuana. And so I text her the study and she goes, no way. And I text her back, way. And then she stopped and just, I mean, radically changed her life in a good way. And about five months later, I text her back because I'm getting ready to do this big talk in front of 7,000 uh, high school students. And I'm like, are you having more fun with your good habits or the bad ones? And she texted me right back, ha, good, by a billion. And that's what I want people who are listening to this to know that doing the right thing for your brain is completely about love. It's never about deprivation. It's about doing the right thing so that you can get mo the most out of that part of you that makes you human. So Daniel, let's talk about some of those things. I mean, it's, it's uh, the truth to say that you've had a massive impact on my life, my wife's life, my wife's life who you know, and our three boys who you've met. I mean, you know, I, I do not let my boys play sports that could, you know, at least easily damage their brain. And, and some might think that's a little bit extreme or draconian, but after being with you and hearing you talk and reading your books, I'm not doing anything intentionally, at least with my boys, to damage their brains. Uh, you've taught me a lot about my food intake and exercise and, and, and things I can do for my memory and the, the role that water plays. Will you take a few minutes and talk about what are some of the things that we do to damage our brains and what are some things that you know, immediately today, without major lifestyle changes, all of us could do to strengthen our brain health? Maybe kind of the, the bad list and damage and the good list around health. Well, let's do it around uh, what I wrote about in Memory Rescue. Uh, the, the idea behind Memory Rescue and really the question you're asking, how do I keep my brain healthy or rescue it if it's headed to the dark place. And the answer that I write about in Memory Rescue is you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And it really is all about how do you keep your brain healthy or how do you get it back? And since it's a memory book, I came up with a mnemonic, which is Greek for a memory device. Uh, and the mnemonic is called Bright Minds. So if you can remember those 11 words, they'll really trigger you to do the right thing. So the B in Bright Minds is for blood flow. Low blood flow is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease. So besides the scan, how would you know if you have hypertension, if you have any form of heart disease, if you have erectile dysfunction? I know people don't want to talk about it, although there's commercials on it you know, nonstop on the television. Um, if you have blood flow problems anywhere, it likely means they're everywhere. And so that's a risk factor. 
and if you don't exercise. And so let's just talk about tiny habits. It's a process I love. We've been working with this group at Stanford on how people change behavior. And, you know, some people change when they have an epiphany. They see their scan. It's terrible. They're like, okay, I have to do better. They change the people they hang out with or they engage in these small incremental changes. So the tiny habits for increasing blood flow is exercise. Um, and you're like, oh, I can't do that. I don't have time. And I guarantee you're not as busy as I am. It's why I wear my Fitbit every day. Because, you know, I'm like, got to get your steps. And so I just, I park farther away from the store. If I'm going to go to the store, I'm purposeful about meetings. I actually have a lot of my meetings while I'm walking. I have a huddle every morning. It's about a half an hour. I always do it, or virtually always do it while I'm walking or I'm working out. Um, so steps, so important. Um, there's a supplement I like to increase blood flow. It's called ginkgo biloba. People have heard about that. It increases blood flow to the brain. Certain simple foods like beets or cayenne pepper or the spice rosemary uh, can increase blood flow. So that's the process. So know the risk factor, low blood flow, and then have some simple things to do about it. R is retirement and aging. When you stop learning, your brain starts dying. And so the simple intervention is new learning. Spend 15 minutes a day doing something you don't know how to do. So it's not, it's, for me, it's not reading more brain scans. It's, you know, it's mm -hmm. learning a language or playing the piano or picking up a new game that obviously won't damage my brain. I is inflammation. And scientists know this is a major cause of heart disease, cancer, depression, and dementia. And so how do you know if you have inflammation? Um, there's a blood test. It's like super simple. It's called C-reactive protein. High levels go with high inflammation in your body, which damages everything. The super simple tiny habit, thousand milligrams of fish oil every day. And if you're a vegetarian, they make omega-3 fatty acids from algae. Um, you know, I talk about the science behind this in memory rescue. The G is genetics. And you just ask yourself, what do you have in your family? Um, for me, it's heart disease. For some people, it's depression. For others, it's bipolar disorder or it's Alzheimer's disease. And genes, what we discovered, they are not a death sentence. Just because you have the genes for Alzheimer's doesn't at all mean you're going to get it, but it should be a wake-up call. If I have this vulnerability for heart disease and obesity in my family, now I don't have heart disease and I'm not obese. Why? because I know I have a risk. So I'm super serious to decrease the risk. H is head trauma. You and we were already talking about it. I'm so grateful to you that you're protecting your boys' brains because you love them. Um, and a head injury can just devastate their lives. I can't tell you the number of high school, college, professional football players I've treated who've been suicidal or who had rage attacks. Uh, it's, you know, we have to be more thoughtful, protect the head, that's the tiny habit. Um, the T is about toxins. And I'm just horrified with our society, right? Many people think alcohol is a health food, no. It's a toxin. It increases the risk of seven different kinds of cancer. 
anything that does that, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, marijuana, you know, 26 states have legalized it. You know, people think, oh, it's innocuous, it's good medicine. Um, I'm like, it decreases blood flow to the brain. It's not your friend. Now, could, should they be able to give it to people who have seizures? You bet. Somebody's dying at the end of their life? You bet. But let's not say it's good for us because it's not. And then even environmental toxins like the products you put on your body, uh, things filled with parabens or phthalates, things known as hormone disruptors. So very careful about toxins. M is mental health. Did you know depression doubles the risk of Alzheimer's in women and quadruples it in men? So if you have a mental health issue, critically important to treat it. But we treat it in this bright minds way. Um, quickly, I'll just do the last ones. I is immunity and infections. Optimize your vitamin D level, strengthens your immunity. N is neurohormone deficiencies. You have to test your hormones and optimize them. The simple little tiny habit for testosterone makes you virile, strong, um, good mood, good memory. Um, let's kill the sugar because people get a sugar burst, uh, drops your testosterone levels by 25% or more. Um, D is diabetes. It's the epidemic in our country. High blood sugar, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, 50% of us have diabetes or prediabetes, which is a disaster for brain function because it damages every blood vessel in your body. And 70% of Americans are overweight, 40% obese. And I published two studies that show as your weight goes up, the size and function of your brain goes down. So you got to eat right. Uh, I mean, it's just absolutely essential. We can talk more about that. And then the S is sleep and you want to target seven hours of sleep at night and you want to turn off your gadgets probably two hours before you go to bed so that you're not getting flooded with blue lights that turns off melatonin. So that's sort of a high level overview. The really short answer to the question, it's three things. Brain health is three things. Got to care about your brain like never before. Avoid anything that hurts it. Know the list do things that help it every day. Daniel, enormously helpful. Take Bright Minds kind of a little more tactical. Let's talk about five or six different categories. Let's talk about liquids. Will you give us your assessment of caffeine, alcohol, water, do's and don'ts, kind of, you know, generally speaking, what should people doing with liquids on a day-to-day -day basis to increase their brain health? So the brain's 80% water. And so water is critically important. If you're dehydrated, it actually decreases your strength, but also your ability to think clearly and rationally. So I like it if people drink about half their weight in ounces a day. So I'm 150 pounds, so it's like 75, 80 ounces a day. That's really good for me. Caffeine dehydrates you. Um, plus it's addictive and it constricts blood flow to your brain. So it actually hits a number of the risk factors in a bad way. Alcohols dehydrate you and it's toxic for you and it can disrupt your sleep. So I'm generally not a fan. Now, I know I've like taken people's coffee away and their booze away and they hate me and, 
and, and I'm not a fan of moderation. Anytime I hear somebody say everything in moderation, it's their excuse to do the wrong thing. But, you know, if you have one cup of coffee a day, it's not the end of the world. Please don't have six. Um, and oh, by the way, one venti at Starbucks is three. Um, so, and then if you have a glass or two of wine a week, it's not a big deal. If you have it every day, according to a study from Johns Hopkins, you have a smaller brain. And when it comes to your brain, size really does matter. You know, it's the only organ in your body where size really does matter. So, so Daniel, on the liquids, you'd say, you know, a, a small cup of caffeine a day sounds like maybe a third or a half a cup of alcohol a day. Not every day, but if you said two to three a week, maybe, you know, not one every day. And on the water intake, it sounds like it's probably about, for the average person, six to eight equivalent water bottles, if you will, a day of water. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, if you're drinking a 24-ounce bottle of water, which are really common these days, then, you know, three or four yeah. of those would be right. awesome. So let's talk about diet and food. Can you talk about uh, vegetables, fruits, uh, meats, breads, all that kind of stuff? What, what are some things that we should be more mindful of consuming and also more mindful of not? So think of a plate. 70% should be plant-based foods. Um, and the more colorful they are, the more plant-like medicines that you're going to consume and 30% um, high quality protein. And if you mix in there, because both fat and protein, um, both vegetables and uh, meats have fat in them, really high quality fat. So I never want people to think low fat diet. Why? 60% of the solid weight of your brain is fat. So if somebody calls you a fathead, say thank you. Um, so when I teach my patients about nutrition, it's high quality calories and not too many of them. Um, if you're overweight, you need to have a sense of how many calories a day you're putting in your body. And people, for some reason, oh, I can't count calories. I'm like, dude, did you like not really pass third grade? Because it's about addition right? It's just keep a list. I, you know, when I like gain a pound or two, it sort of irritates me. And on my phone in the notes section, I'm like, I write down what I ate. And, you know, initially the first month or so, you have to sort of weigh and measure things so you know how much is in the food. Um, but I don't know if you're like me. Um, I hate wasting money. It just irritates me. Um, you know, if I come home and the lights are on when they don't need to be on. I know I'm just like wasting money and it irritates me. Um, and so I'll say something. I hate wasting calories. Uh, I think of calories like money. And am I investing my calories properly for my energy and health and mental clarity? Or am I wasting them and being sort of dumb with them? Because, you know, physically I'm going to end up bankrupt just like if I wasn't paying attention to how much money I spent. So high quality calories, water, um, clean protein. This is the issue with, uh, with meats. Uh, they're often unclean. In fact, you know, you have animals raised with hormones and antibiotics uh, that are depressed because they're 
raised in terrible environments, well, you're going to get those depressed chemicals because, you know, I mean, whenever I feel bad, my body produces chemicals consistent with me feeling bad. So sustainably ra raised clean uh, meats, but protein's really important. The human brain actually started to grow according to some theories when humans began eating meat. Um, it just needs to be clean. I'm a huge fan of fish because people who eat fish, grilled or baked fish, um, filet of fish doesn't count. Grilled or baked fish once a week, they actually have more gray matter in their brain. That means they have more processing units in their brain. Um, healthy fats, so think of healthy oils like avocado oil or macadamia nut oil or olive oil, coconut oil, um, avocados themselves, green leafy vegetables, uh, and then healthy meats and fish like we talked about. Um, smart carbs. This is really important. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Um, the weapons of mass destruction in our society are highly processed, pesticide sprayed, high glycemic, so those are foods that quickly raise your blood sugar, those are carbs, high glycemic, low fiber, food-like substances stored in plastic containers. So those are the weapons of mass destruction. ISIS has not one thing on our food industry. Um, we need to just really get serious. And so the carbs I like are low glycemic. So these are carbs that do not raise your blood sugar that are also high in fiber. So think of vegetables. Um, think of some low glycemic fruits like blueberries or cherries or um, apples and oranges, uh, high glycemic fruits, things like pineapple and watermelon, dates. You, you wanna limit those for sure. And I'm just not a fan of bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, and sugar. Why? Let me be really clear about this. Because they're high glycemic, they quickly raise your blood sugar. And I had a father-in-law who died from diabetes. Diabetes is a freaking disaster for every organ in your body. And given that 50% of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic, it's driven by our simple carbohydrate diets and we can do better about that. You wanna cook with herbs and spices because they're loaded with medicine. Some of my favorite are saffron, which has been shown head to head against antidepressants to be equally effective, shown to be helpful for women with PMS, enhance sexuality and your memory. So like load up on the saffron, uh, but also spices like rosemary and cayenne pepper. Cinnamon helps to balance blood sugar um, and so on. So. And, and just get rid of artificial sweeteners, artificial dyes, because they've been shown to be harmful uh, to people. I have scans before and after MSG or before and after red dye number 40, and they're not pretty. Um, and people go, oh, but there's nothing left to eat. And I'm like, seriously, God gave you a big brain for a reason. There's like 10,000 things to eat, but you only want to love something that loves you back. 
you know, Scott, we, you and I talked about the Daniel plan, this big project I did at Saddleback Church, one of the largest churches in the world. And one of the pastor's wives told me that she told her husband the night before she'd rather get Alzheimer's disease than give up sugar. And I'm just, my eyes got really big and I'm like, did you date the bad boys in college? I mean, cause that's like insane to say something like that. Um, but too often people get attached to what they've done for so long and the brain hates change that we really had to shift her mindset to see sugar as a weapon of mass destruction. It's addictive, it um, increases erratic brain cell firing. It's really not great for you. Um, yet people are in love with it. It's sort of like being in love with an abusive girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm gonna need a psychiatrist because of my psychiatrist. Did you say extra potatoes and extra pasta or none? <laughs> we so, have to fix that brain of yours. <laughs> Dana, we talked about liquids and, and, and diet and such. Talk a bit about exercise and sleep. I really am I'm always interested in your, you know, your take on high-performing executives that kind of take pride in getting as little sleep as possible. In fact, you're actually a really big advocate of scheduling your sleep and creating a sleep environment. Talk a little bit about some tips around exercise and sleep, and then we'll move to some of the, um, the, the topics that are interesting to people around Alzheimer's and dementia. There's actually an interesting book called uh, Power Sleep, and he recommends that you not hire people who get less than seven hours of sleep at night because the research shows is they make more mistakes. And I know I used to think I was special because I could get by on four hours of sleep at night. And then I realized after reading the research, I really wasn't special, I was just dumb. And so I really try to focus on averaging seven hours a week. And which means, you know, I get in bed by 10 and uh, I try not to get up until five or five or six in the morning. Uh, I really have come to understand the research. What happens when you sleep is that your brain cleans or washes itself. So it basically is cleaning up the trash. And if you don't give it enough time, trash builds up and then it sort of gets gunky in there. And that's not what you want. And, you know, a lot of people know when they've not had a good night's sleep, they're just more likely to make a bad decision, say something harmful to their coworkers or their spouse, um, eat something they really shouldn't have eaten. Um, you're just more likely to make a bad decision. And, uh, you know, whenever I teach people on how to make good decisions, getting seven hours of sleep is the first thing uh, that I want them to do. So what are the things that interfere with sleep? Caffeine, alcohol, um, gadgets, white, uh, the blue lights from your gadgets, computers and phones and things like that. You can put blue light blockers on them um, actually fairly easily. Um, and then make sure the rooms are cooler. Um, that promotes sleep. They're quieter, promotes sleep. Um, and I love, we actually make some hypnosis audios on our online program, BrainFit Life, that really helps to promote sleep. So it's really caring about it, avoiding anything that hurts it, and doing things 
that promoted. People who have sleep apnea um, is very common among business executives. They snore, they stop breathing at night, they're tired during the day. On their scans, it looks like they have early Alzheimer's mm. disease. I mean, it's like super serious. And the doctor will give them a CPAP machine and they'll wear it for two or three nights, can't get used to it, and then they'll forget mm -hmm. about it. But if you have untreated sleep apnea, it's murdering brain cells every night. I mean, I know that's like a terrible image, but that's exactly what's happening. It puts the brain into an oxygen debt state. And the brain, we already talked about it, uses 20% of the oxygen in your body. Anytime you put it in a debt state, you're murdering brain cells. Daniel, talk a bit about exercise for a minute. Uh, for the average person who's not you know, at the gym every day, is there a particular type of exercise or amount that you'd say we should each be doing each day to keep our blood flow and the oxygen to our brain? To yeah, our brain? I'm actually gonna give you sort of an unusual answer for a doctor. I am completely not a fan of marathons and extreme sports because when I scan the people that do it, their brains look toxic to me. I'm a fan of um, walking or running, getting your heart rate up, but not going for a long walk. I want you to do burst training because burst training has actually been found to increase the little powerhouse um, power plants in your cells called the mitochondria. And so if you go for a half an hour walk, what I want you to do is run or walk as fast as you can for four or five one minute bursts. So high intensity training has been found to be as effective, maybe even more effective than long distance training. So burst, and then I want you to be strong for men and women. I want you to um, lift weights uh, at least two or three times a week. And the reason for that is the stronger you are as you age, the less likely you are to fall and the less likely you are to get Alzheimer's disease. In addition, um, when, you, when you're walking, I want you to walk like you're late. So people who are 80 who can only walk a mile an hour have a 90% chance they will not live until they're 90. People who can walk three miles an hour when they're 80 have a 90% chance they will live until they're 90. So that one statistic sticks in my mind that if I'm walking, I'm moving. So move it out, lift weights, have these high intensity bursts, and then do something from a coordination standpoint. Did you know, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but people who play racket sports actually live longer than everyone else. It's certainly, it's a high intensity, thing. I play table tennis. Um, but the coordination exercises help to activate your cerebellum. And when you activate the cerebellum, you're really turning on the rest of the brain because as we I mentioned earlier, it's the brain's processor. Daniel, are there any uh, myths you might debunk around Sudoku or dancing or chess or board games as it relates to keeping your brain active, independent of those other things you mentioned? You know, I think the myth is if I do crossword puzzles, that's enough. And doing crossword puzzles actually works the left front side of the brain. And if you just did that as your new learning tool, 
It's like going to the gym, doing right bicep curls, and then leaving. So you want to work out your whole brain. And so by playing table tennis, for me, I'm working out my cerebellum because it's very much a thoughtful game. I'm also working out my frontal lobes. So if I do that, plus go to dancing with my wife, play piano, I'm beginning to work out multiple areas of my brain. And that is a much more efficient way to keep your brain healthy. Now, of course, if you drink while you're dancing, it completely eliminates the benefit. That makes sense. Daniel, I want to talk about um, Alzheimer dementia and then ADHD, and then spend some time talking about how organizations can invest in their uh, leaders and employees' brains. First, something everybody's facing in their life. Everyone has a relative, a neighbor, a friend, a colleague, someone, a parent, grandparent who is suffering from either dementia or Alzheimer's. You've written about, spoken about, published, evangelized a lot around helping to slow the process. Is it true that it can be prevented or is preventable? Are there some signs at particular ages that we can, that we're headed towards the path? Kind of tell us your truth around that topic and what are some things that we can do to help either slow the process or decelerate, as I think you say, that um, the process towards either of those afflictions? Um, Dementia is a huge problem in the United States Mm -hmm. and it's getting worse. Alzheimer's, about 5 million people have it now. It's estimated to be 15 million people by 2050. Um, But the statistic that just horrifies me is if you are blessed to live until you're 85 or older, you have a one in two chance of having lost your mind. So you have a 50% chance of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's just by the fact you're 85 years old. So that horrifies me. The second thing that horrifies me around this is what we know is Alzheimer's disease actually starts in your brain decades before you have any symptoms. So I remember once I diagnosed a 59-year-old woman with Alzheimer's disease. She likely had negative changes in her brain in her 20s. So those people who are waiting until they lose their minds to get serious about being healthy, you want to rethink that. All of us should always be on an Alzheimer's prevention program, which is basically the Bright Minds program that I write extensively about in memory rescue. It's those are the 11 major risk factors. And we use those. If you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, that's exactly how we intervene to try to slow or even reverse the process in your brain. Um, I think this is you, you have to take a multi-pronged approach and really get obsessed about brain health. They're never going to find Alzheimer's treatment in a pill that looks at a single mechanism because there's just not one way your brain falls apart. You have to go after the war on multiple fronts. So so I'm guessing the previous advice was the same advice. Is there anything in particular that people who either have a relative who has Alzheimer's, therefore they think they're predisposed or they're starting to worry about it on their own, are there any additional protocols you might advise on how each of us can start our own prevention program in our 30s, our 40s, and our 50s? 
Well, if you have it in your family, the big intervention is you have to be serious as soon as possible. And you have to know that genes are not a death sentence. That's like the big headline of what we've learned in genetics over the last 20 years is there's a part of genetics called epigenetics, which means your habits turn on or off certain mm -hmm. genes, making illness more or less likely. So if you know, and you can have the genes tested, if you know you have a genetic vulnerability, you either have the genes or you have family members, um, you just have to be so serious about doing all the other things right. So many people, they go, oh, I have it in my family, and they take a fatalistic view. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. And then they eat, drink, and um, you know they do the wrong things. Um, and in my mind, I'm like, no, you have to become what my wife, Tana, and I call a brain warrior. You need to be armed, prepared, and aware to win the fight of your life. And Tana and I wrote a book called The Brain Warrior's Way, because, you know, I just see our society is promoting Alzheimer's disease. It's not helping us defend against it. Daniel, and the last few minutes we have together, I want to talk about um, ADD, ADHD. You've written extensively of best-selling books to talk about that affliction that so many parents have with their children. Are there any myths or truth you'd like to share with the many, you know, thousands of parents who will watch this program in the coming weeks and months. What are some things people can do with, if, they, if they're concerned about that with their children? I know you are a very measured physician as a psychiatrist. One thing I evangelize about you with my friends is why I like referring so many people to your clinics, which I have. I've, I've referred 30 or 40 people across the nation to one of your eight or so clinics around, around the nation. Uh, because I, I, I think you have a really good sense of where Western medic, medic, medicine, you know, and therapy and exercise and diet, uh, and, and what roles that, you know, injury might play in ADD in life. G give a few minutes, if you will, on what you know to be true and perhaps not true around people that maybe even have, a, that are adults that are still struggling with that diagnosis or even being undiagnosed. What can you tell us that would be valuable for us on that topic? Well, there are lots of myths and misconceptions about ADD. You know, people call it a fad. It's not real. It's made up by the drug companies. All of that is complete nonsense. It's been described in the medical literature for 115 years. It is real. And when it's left untreated, it devastates people's lives. A third of ADD kids never finish high school. There's a higher incidence of divorce, incarceration, addiction, job failure, financial failure. Um, and from a business standpoint, many people have ADD become CEOs of companies, their own companies, because they're not really great at working for other people. Um, they can be incredibly bright. ADD actually has nothing to do with intelligence. They're really bright people with ADD and really people who struggle who have ADD. Um, unfortunately, most kids and adults are put on stimulant medication in a seven minute office visit by doctors who don't have the time or specialized training to at least try more natural solutions. So if you came to see me, the first thing I wanna do is get your diet right, if you'll do it. Not everybody will do it. I wanna test you because sometimes thyroid can be low and that makes you look like you have ADD or iron levels in your body are low and that makes you look like you have ADD. Uh, 
certain kind of diet has been shown to be as effective as medicine. So why don't we try that first? If I can get people to cooperate, exercise shows to be really helpful. And sometimes even when you do the best in natural treatments, not nearly as effective as the medication. And so, you know, you never withhold medicine from somebody who had diabetes or cancer. And unfortunately in our society, we see mental health issues is sort of like your fault or not real uh, or snap out of it. And one of the big things our brain imaging work has taught us is, you know, these things are real medical disorders, just as if you had a problem with your kidneys or your liver or your heart. And we need to be thoughtful. But just like if you had diabetes, I'm trying to get your diet right and I'm trying to get you to exercise and decrease your stress stress because your blood sugar will be better if you do the lifestyle thing. So I think the same thing is true for the brain. Daniel, I've known you for a decade and you're one of the most productive people I know. Uh, and you're honestly you're a gift to our nation, our world in terms of the decades you've spent researching the science of brains, how it helps and hurts families and individuals. Recently, you've spent more time kind of focused on organizations and the role that they can play in the brain health of their people. In fact, Franklin Covey so appreciates and admires your research around it, we actually included, as you mentioned earlier, one of the modules in our five choices to extraordinary productivity solution. One of them is on brain health featuring you. But I'm also thinking that most CEOs don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, if I could just improve the brain health of my people, we'd, you know, meet our profit targets or we'd, you know, create more market share. What are you finding as you coach CEOs, many of you are patients, some who are clients, what are you finding in terms of where organizations are moving in their interest and investment in the brain health of their employees? So we're actually, uh, I did a fun project with the NBA, uh, with NBA referees, and we planted brain health there. Why? So they'd make better decisions. So there would be less employment issues. So they would get along with each other better because, you know, it's an incredibly stressful job. Um, we're working with a new company in Southern California called Earth Friendly Products. Uh, they produce green cleaning products and I love them. They're just amazing. And the CEO just totally gets if my employees brains are better, they're going to be happier. They're going to be more productive. They'll get along better. They'll be more creative. Um, when you don't care about your employees brains, you don't care about yourself because your profitability uh, long term has to do with the moment by moment functioning of their brain. You know, if you just think of the prefrontal cortex that we talked about, forethought, judgment, impulse control, organization, planning, empathy, learning from your mistakes. If a business doesn't have that, they're not going to ever live up to their potential. And so that's why we're so excited to work with Franklin Covey and to work with individual companies to plant brain health because ultimately it starts with the three pounds between your ears. Daniel, let's end this on, on a final kind of personal note. I'd like you to kind of speak to the audience of the thousands, millions of people who might see this in the coming weeks and months as if they were parents, many of them are. 
And I'd like you to give each of us some really practical things that you should, we should all be doing today as it relates to our children. Because I told you, you've had a big impact on my parenting style in terms of how I, you've taught me so much. I mean, I remember one time you talked to me about one of the best ways to connect with my infant children was to get down on my knees and get to eye level with them. I've been on my knees with my boys thousands of times, sometimes, you know, kind of groaning because you talked about how to connect with your children. You're also a psychiatrist. Give us a rapid fire, your experience, thousands of patients as a psychiatrist, a brain expert, a neuroscientist. What are some things that parents can do tonight to ensure the brain health of their children in terms of safety and helmets and sports and food. Just kind of remind us of all those things as parents we should do starting today. So here's a whole bunch of tiny habits, these little tiny things you can do to dramatically improve your children's lives and your relationships with them. The first one is play a little game with them. Since Chloe, who's now almost 15, since she was two, she and I played this game together we call Chloe's Game. Um, is this good for my brain or bad for it? So whenever we come to a decision point in the day, hey, sweetie, is this good for your brain or bad for it? You know, playing football, she'll go two thumbs down, God's butter, God, um, that's crazy. Um, if I say avocado, she'll go two thumbs up, God's butter. I say blueberries, she'll ask me if they're organic. I mean, really begin to plant these habits just by going good for your brain or bad for it. Start every day by saying to each other, today is going to be a great day. That way, you're going to begin to work on their unconscious mind to find what's right rather than what's wrong. The brain was programmed to find problems because either you were made or you evolved in a world that was very dangerous and we don't need to wake up with fear. Um, end every day by just at dinner time or at bedtime, go, hey, what went well today? Just to get their dreams right because you're teaching them to focus not on what's wrong, but on what's right. Um, spend 20 minutes a day with your children every day doing something with them they wanna do. Just why? Because it helps bonding. I wrote a book once called Healing the Hardware of the Soul, and there's a chapter in the book on how to make your child a Republican, a Democrat, or anything you want. If you bond with that child, they'll pick your values. Hmm. If you never spend time with the child, if you're nasty and you don't listen, to them, they're gonna pick the opposite value. So you're gonna influence the values they pick uh, so it will really depend on your bond with them and bonding requires two things, time, actual physical time. And during that 20 minutes, no commands, no questions, no directions, don't hassle them about their relationship with their siblings, their room, their homework, none of that. Um, and then learn this technique called active listening that when they say something to you, don't give them your two cents. I know you have a lot of experience and you wanna pour it into their head so they don't make the same mistakes you do, but don't do that. Listen, repeat back what you hear, let them talk without you interrupting them. Unbelievable how that will bond and connect them with you. So uh, Chloe's game, listening, and then the last thing is you wanna notice what's right more than what's wrong. Oh, by the way, this is the same way you manage people. <laughs> but notice what you like more than what you don't hmm. like. Hmm. 
Daniel, you taught me a concept, gosh, a decade ago about ants and, and the impact that ants has in your psyche. Uh, share with that for the audience, for those who may not be familiar with your concept around ants. I actually have a new children's book called Captain Snout and the Superpower Questions. It's based on this idea that every time you have a thought, your brain releases chemicals every single time. And every cell in your body actually responds to every thought you have. So if you have negative thoughts, your hands get colder, they get um, they start to sweat, your breathing gets funny, your brain function goes down. Um, and thoughts are automatic. They just happen. And I call them ants, automatic negative thoughts. And so you need to develop an anteater in your head to get rid of the bad thoughts. Um, it's so powerful. And here's the little tiny habit. Whenever you feel mad or sad or nervous, write down what you're thinking and ask yourself if it's true. And you totally can do this with kids. I mean, we found four-year-olds you can do this with. Um, just so they begin to question the thoughts that randomly appear in their head to go, are you helping me or are you hurting me? Daniel, finish us up. Talk about your clinics. I believe you have eight locations across the U.S. Why did you found them? What role do they play? And if someone is interested and coming to the clinic, what's the process for them to kind of get started? Again, like I said, every couple of weeks I'll have someone text me and say, uh, tell me about Dr. Amen's clinics. You know, might they help my husband or my, my, my dad or my brother or my kid? Uh, talk a little bit about the reason and the function of your clinics around the nation. So at Amen Clinics, we um, were a group of, goodness, almost 40 psychiatrists, and we believe that we should look at your brain before we go about changing it. Um, but then there's so many non-pharmaceutical ways to change your brain. We wanna always teach you how to put your brain in a healing environment. We treat little kids who have autism and ADHD, learning problems, behavior problems, and we treat old people who have dementia and virtually everybody in between depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, PTSD, OCD, uh, couples and families who are struggling. And we couldn't be more joyful. Um, on average, people are complicated when they come see us. Uh, we studied them. They have four different diagnoses. They failed three people and five medications. But at the end of six months, if we treat them, 84% are better. So we have one of the highest outcome uh, in mental health treatment. Um, our clinics, we have uh, four now on the West Coast, uh, Bellevue, Washington, Walnut Creek outside of San Francisco, Encino just north of Los Angeles, Costa Mesa in Orange County, um, brand new clinic in Chicago, another one in Manhattan, Washington, DC, Lord, they need it there, uh, and Atlanta. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, amenclinics.com. You can learn about what we do. And if you want a better brain um, or a different way to um, work with the mental health issue you have, we would love to see you. Daniel, I'm guessing there's at least one more book in the hopper. What can you tell us about what's on the come in terms of your, your authoring and books, your book pipeline? I just filmed uh, Night Before Last, our new PBS special for 
uh, December of this year, uh, 2018, based on my book, Feel Better Fast and Make It Last. So what are the things people do that help themselves feel better now, but not later, versus what I teach my patients mm -hmm. now and later? And it's powerful, lots of super practical pieces of information and feel better fast, because it really is possible to feel better fast in a way that lasts. Daniel, I'm guessing most therapy sessions are just under an hour. We've hit just under an hour, so thank you for your time. We could use more of your time. I'm so honored and grateful that you gave this hour to Franklin Covey and to everybody watching this series. Please give our company's best to all your associates and my personal best to your wife and your children, your grandkids. We appreciate your your, your, the gift that literally you've given humanity in terms of helping all of us just be a little bit more thoughtful and mindful around how to take care of the one organ that we often don't see or treat very often, as you say. So thank you so much. I'm grateful for your time, Daniel. Have a great week. Appreciate you. Thank you, my friend. Thanks. Thank you all. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks so much.